wellness has got to take into account all types of wellness. I mean, there are different levels. You got to take into account mental wellness, emotional wellness, physical wellness, but it's more than just, hey, everybody's got to throw on the shoes and go running. I'm Adam Connors from NetworkWise and your host of Who's Who in HR. Ask any successful CEO about the most important aspect of their company and they'll inevitably answer their people. And who is it that's responsible for their people? It's human resources. In fact, HR is the backbone of any elite organization. They attract, develop, and engage top talent, progress culture, secure and manage important benefit programs, make sure you're appropriately paid, protect the best interest of each employee and the company, and so much more that quite frankly often gets taken for granted. On Who's Who in HR, I'll have in-depth discussions with well-known human resource leaders who offer insights into who they are, how they got there, and the areas they support. During our conversation, these leaders will reveal beneficial industry advice and innovative trends in the HR space that's contributing to keeping the world's most successful companies at the top of their game. My guest on this episode is Dr. Wade Larson, the Chief Human Resource Officer for Wagstaff. He's all about making an impact and helping companies fix their mistakes. Let's dive right in. Dr. Wade Larson, you uh, go by Dr. Wade, Mr. Larson. What do you go by? I'm not a real doctor, but I play one on TV, right? Um, no, I got Wade, Dr. Wade, whichever, uh, whichever form that we're in, Wade's good enough for this one. All right, works for me. Before uh, kicking off, I'd want to really give thanks to Lisa Spinelli. She's just fantastic in general, but kind enough to put us in touch when I was uh, telling her about the show and the types of people that are going to be on here before I even finished explaining it. She goes, you have to meet Wade. And you came as delivered. So I'm really excited to share your story and your expertise with our listeners. Let's see if I deliver. All right. <laughs> Before we get started, why don't you give a quick overview of kind of uh, who you are and what it is that you do. And then what I'll do is I'll kind of go in and ask a couple questions just a little bit more on a personal side, just to get a, a better sense for who you are, let the audience get a sense of just your personality. And then we'll start digging into the meat and potatoes of your experience. Sure, sure. I'm what you call a, I'm a recovering HR executive. I go in and out of uh, real jobs and and uh, consulting, you know, meaning I'll, I'll have a real job for a bit and then I'll go consult and practice what I preach. And then I'll go back to have a real job and go consult. Uh, and so I've been here with Wagstaff, a global manufacturer for the last four years, but I'll still dip my toes into consulting. And I, I always have clients on hand going back and forth with some things. So I've worked in public sector, private sector, between consulting and jobs. I've worked with over a couple hundred different employers. So I've seen good, bad, ugly we all do the same things and have the same problems. We just change the names to protect the guilty. So <laughs> <laughs> that's a great way of describing it. And what type of consulting are you doing? Cause you also do a lot of speaking, correct? I do. I do. It's general HR consulting, change management, organizational things, leadership things. Uh, hey, we've got a problem. What do you think? Training development, those kinds of gigs, the speaking thing. Well, a little bit of COVID will put a halt to the speaking gigs mm. right away, but uh, usually on stage a couple of times or a couple of dozen times a year. Uh, but yeah, I got a couple of books out there now and got a third one coming out this summer. 
Oh, what can, are you at liberty to share? Yeah, yeah. So the, the ones in the past, uh, the first one was uh, doing HR better. It's so simplistic of a title, but it's just simply, that's just who I am, right? It's, I'm doing HR better. It's process improvement in HR. And the second one was mind shifts in healthcare, which is based on you know the co- couple of rounds with employers where I, we save millions of dollars. And these are not big employers by doing the basics, putting some things in place. And the third one this summer is called A Time for Civility. And that's the new one coming out. Excellent. So are you able to give us a sneak peek about uh, this, this third book that's coming out or you want to wait? No, no, I can, no, I can sneak peek that one. This one actually came from a harassment investigation that I was working on for a client. And it was not unlike other investigations that I was with where we have a complaint. It comes up. Here's the victim. And I don't minimize the complaints. They happen. Stuff happens. It's bad stuff. We take all complaints seriously. Here's another situation. I'm visiting with the manager and I'm saying, here's the situation. And as the manager went to the training, they read the policy and they're surprised that here we go again of, you know, really? That was harassment? Like, yeah, that was harassment. Where we have another manager that did the stupid thing of sending that one text message late at night. And the employee who was the victim in the case had that text message and held on to it until just the right time, two and a half years later. And yeah, it crossed the line. Yes, it was inappropriate, but two and a half years later, really, it made me think that in over 25 years, we've been training, we've been sending policies, we've been making everybody go through this god-awful training on harassment, discrimination, and bullying. And if you look at the results, we still do it. The lawsuits haven't gone down. The complaints through the EEOC haven't gone down in 25 years. We still have the problem. We're treating the symptom. It's like going to the doctor and saying, hey, I have a fever, and we treat the fever to bring the fever down, but we never ask the question of what's causing the fever. That's what it's about. Interesting. Okay, cool. I'm, I'm looking forward to that. I've, uh, I actually have a few friends that are partners at different varying law firms on the, in employment law. So it's really interesting to hear uh, some of the stories that they have and I'm very interested to see how this book, when's it coming out? Is it done and it's kind of in review right now? It's in an ugly phase, you know, where it's like it's done and you fall in love with the book at the start. You're passionate about the book. You start, you jump in, you start writing the book. And then about the time that you get done with the book, you hate it. You really hate (laughs) everything about the soul of the book uh, because now you have to edit it and you have to chop it out. (laughs) We're at the chopping phase. We're at the editing phase. So yeah, yeah, we're we're at that phase. So uh, yeah, it's getting down there. Are, are you self-publishing? I am. Yeah, you are. Gotcha. Oh, okay. Yeah. So there's a lot, of, lot more work involved in that. So, but, so let's talk about you a little bit. I want to let everybody, and I'm sure they've gotten a sense for your fun spirit, but if you don't mind, I'd love to hit you with a couple quick questions and then we'll get into the meat and potatoes of this conversation. You bet. So what do you do, Wade, to keep yourself sharp physically and mentally? Well, I go on a walk every morning. I get up and I grab the podcast of the day. Who are you listening to this week? This week I listened to, oh, I wish I could remember. The Admiral who was in charge of the SEAL team that oversaw the Osama bin Laden raid. Oh, I I know who you're talking about. That one. Yes. He's the one who famously said that if you you want to raise the rank, go through the ranks, start by making your bed, right? Mm. (laughs) And then what, what was your takeaway from that podcast? Well, his entire focus is uh, sometimes it does come down to hard work. We, we are looking for these giant nuggets for, for how, how to change the world and how to 
get ahead on things and we're always looking for the shortcuts. But sometimes at the end of the day, you got to buckle down and just work hard and yeah. push through these things. And amen to that. That's my motto is GSD, right? Got to get stuff done. Mm-hmm. And, and we, we forget about that sometimes. So, you know, what, what do I do? I mean, I get up every morning, you got to take that walk because that's just the course for the whole day. Yeah. So you're killing two birds with one stone. You're getting the exercise and you're also kind of just keeping yourself sharp. Yep. Got to start it off every day. Yep. So maybe this is your habit, but do you have any habits, good or bad? Well, yeah, it ties into it. I mean, that is a habit. Got to get my NPR in in the morning, right? (laughs) But it's a terrible habit, but I am a workaholic and I wish I could say I'm recovering, but I'm not. But that's part of who I am. I stay awake. I work until I can't keep my eyes open anymore. I mean, God put me on this planet to get as much done as I can to help other people. And that's just what I do every day. It's life short. So let's get as much done as we can to, to help other people, not just work, but to actually make a difference. Well, I mean, you know what they say, you know, when you enjoy what you do, you never work a day in your life. And every day, I mean, it's something new. I, I, I've never had the same day twice. Isn't that the truth? So what was the last thing that made you laugh? You know, having kids is one thing, but having grandkids is something else. We were young, right? When we had kids, I mean, we had kids in college. We were going to have like one kid by the time we graduated from grad school, but we ended up having three with the fourth on the way. So we had four kids under five, right? So we were young and dumb. It was great. I mean, we were broke in college. So what else are you going to have, right? Do (laughs) kids. So that makes us the cool grandparents. But uh, having a three-year-old in your house, again, when you can appreciate it, is phenomenal. So- that she's mimicking the adults in the house. And so, oh no, she was walking the other day, she drops something and she just pauses and looks at it, grabs her head and says, oh my gosh. And, <laughs> and there's this three-year-old, oh my gosh. And it's like, I'm just busting up. Just, and she's mimicking what adult behavior. It's just hilarious to see what we do as adults. Yeah, and, and did she grab that from one of your kin or was she, that's just something that she just came up with from, observing TV or whatever it is. Yeah. TV, adult behavior. You don't know where she's grabbing the stuff, but there she is. I mean, if you understand uh, adult psychology and human behavior, you know that their personality is all but set by the time they're age three. Oh, and, I thought it was seven. In, oh, seven. Now they're saying three. Oh, se- seven is where they solidify, right? I mean, their base personality mm-hmm. is there by three. So I'm looking at this girl going three and like, dang. She is hilarious. She's a crack up, but just how much they absorb and pick up. That's the mystery of it all. That was the crack up. That was the last laugh. That can do it. Well, all right, let's transition over into um, your area of expertise, things that you've done. It sounds like you have done a lot as a CHRO and as a consultant going in, fixing problems, improving things. Do you have one area in particular that is your area of expertise? No, I mean, I've, I'm jack of all trades. We go in and, and fix things. And that's what I think if I was known for something, that's it. I'm a fixer. When they hire me, they hire me because something's broken. I mean, if there's something I'm an expert on, it's how to make mistakes. But really, I mean, when I come in, it's, uh, hey, we, we need to take it from here to get to there. So making change happen is one of those. You know, the other claim to fame is healthcare. You know, I, I mentioned we wrote the book, but really the significance there is we talk about how rough healthcare is and how everybody's losing in the world of healthcare. But I gotta tell you, I mean, the solutions are out there. It's a matter of grabbing them. And there's no one silver bullet to healthcare. As an employer, we have the tools to make it work. And how does that work? I mean, we, we're a smaller employer, but I gotta tell you, we just rolled out open enrollment for a group. And this is the fifth year in a row, they're the fifth renewal in a row. 
that we've had negative trend. I've been able to reduce the rates without cutting benefits for my crew. Fifth renewal in a row. What's the trick to that? First of all, you've got to make the employees partners and you've mm-hmm. got to put it at risk. When the employees learn that health insurance is like car insurance, it makes a difference. Why do you not speed? Why do you not get in accidents? Because you know that when you get a ticket or when you get in a car accident, what happens to your rates? They go up, right? Well, if you go to the doctor and you go to the ER, guess what happens to your rates? <laughs> and they don't understand that. When they start understanding that their behavior affects their rates, it starts to click and you say, well, that makes sense. You know, that's a no duh, but people don't get that. So let me ask you this. So are you kind of suggesting, or is there any liability there when you're suggesting, Hey, don't go to the doctor. Not that you're saying that, but by educating them on uh, how the rates work and how they go up, do you run any risk in giving that kind of advice? Or are you just there to more edify them on how it works? No, I, I do a couple of things to help make this thing work. Number one, I tell them, First of all, healthy people don't need to go see the doctor that much, right? So if we can help you be healthy, that's great. Number two is if you're better consumers of healthcare, you don't have to go to the ER if the urgent care center is next door. If you're dying, yeah, go to the ER. But most of these claims that went to the ER didn't have to go to the ER. And when we help them understand what the cost difference is, boom, we started to save a ton of money. Then what happens is, is when we start to shift the plan and we put money into the employees' pockets to make the choices, they become stingy with their money. So we went to high deductible plan. I mean, we talk about the mechanics all day. But once I put the money in their pocket, and then here comes the deal, is once they started to spend their own money, right? Because not only did I increase the deductible, but I gave them the opportunity to earn the entire deductible back in wellness incentives, the whole thing. So they could earn 2,800 bucks back for them and their spouse, put it in their pocket, and they start to manage the money that makes all the difference because then they get a lot smarter on this. But then when they start to see the next year that because they're smart spending habits, they're able to get a reduction in health insurance. The true partnership is this, right? As employers, we're good with partnership when we have to share the cost increases, right? Hey, it went up for us, so we're going to increase yours. But how many employers give the money back when we get cost decreases? That's where the difference was made is, hey, thanks for your help here's more money back for reducing your rates. People get excited really fast. They say, what else can we do? So for the person that's working in benefits right now, are there a couple steps that they can take right now that you would suggest to implement at their organization? Three things would jump out. Number one, you've got to have an aggressive wellness program. You can't get million dollar results with $5 gift cards. That just isn't going to happen. Kind of like you got to spend money to make money. Same concept. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you got to have that at risk feature. So you got to do that. Can can, can I interrupt you for one quick second? I'm sorry to do that. But so in order to do that, though, you've got to get buy-in from the executives. Or is this something that if you're, you're in a position that you've got the ability to do that already? No, you got to, you got to sell them on it. I mean, if they don't buy into this and they don't commit to it, it's just going to be another program of the month. No, no. I meant like the executives. To get buy-in from the from the top, or you that's what I'm talking have, about. Okay, you. No, okay, gotcha. Yeah, that's that's what I'm talking about. They've got to be on board because they've got to give their stamp of approval on this. Okay. When you can tell them how much money they're going to be saving overall, and they're going to be like, yeah, yeah, maybe. But like, you don't need five years to get an ROI on this thing. In both cases, I got an ROI the first year, and after that, you know, I got to tell you, I got four million bucks in the bank after three years on this thing. 
Wow. It doesn't take that long to get money stacked up from the cost savings on this thing. Gotcha. So that's step one. What are the other? You said there were three steps. Yeah. So step number two, you've got to have a strategy on the cost containment. You've got to be a better consumer as the employer. So it's negotiating better terms, but then you have to look at outside programs. So there got to be better ways to do it. There are bolt-on products for your pharma. So yeah, I mean, the, the TPAs or whoever else is going to do it, but you got to be smarter. So we looked at things like uh, medical tourism. We looked at pharmaceutical tourism. This is where we send people over the border for high-cost meds. The Embrils, the Humira, we actually send them to Mexico, go get the same medication, the same drugs, the same everything from the same manufacturers at lower rates. This one's fairly new and it may be controversial, but I got to tell you, we save a lot of money by doing that and the employees have incentives too. And the list goes on and on with those types of things. And medical tourism works the same way. Is that like for procedures as opposed to the pharma is is going out to purchase the pharmaceuticals at a discounted rate? Same same concept? Okay. Yep. Same concept, working directly with other providers. And then number three, you got to get the employees excited. You have to continuously engage the employees. And that comes from an active wellness program, getting the employees to run the wellness committee and having activities throughout the year, not just the nice feel-good stuff, but you actually have to get them engaged. But again, we can go on that all day long. But If you don't mind, expand a little bit on the wellness, because through my conversations, that's been a bigger topic as of late. And I don't know if that just coincides because of COVID or just in general, I'm seeing a little more traction on the wellness side. So what does wellness mean to you and what does it entail to get that momentum going? Sure. For the last 10 years, anytime that we talk about wellness up to this point, for some people, it's going to leave a bad taste in their mouth because they're going to say, ah, geez, not another freaking wellness conversation because Mm -hmm. like wellness, wellness, that doesn't do a gosh dang thing. We tried wellness. It didn't work. Like when they talk about wellness, they're like, hey, we threw out a program of the month and it didn't take, or we uh, had people go through some hoops and uh, nobody changed their behavior. So it didn't work. Wellness has got to take into account all types of wellness. I mean, there are the different levels. You got to take into account mental wellness, emotional wellness, physical wellness, but it's more than just, hey, everybody's got to throw on the shoes and go running. That's not it. Wellness means different things to everybody. You've got to take into account financial wellness. But any kind of baggage that somebody brings into the workplace that doesn't make them right, that's all part of wellness. Mm-hmm. And if all of these things are going to cause them to do things such as eat poorly, uh, have stress in their lives, make bad choices, all of these contribute to what's going to ultimately end up with medical costs. And you have to give them an opportunity to deal with that. And people deal with that differently. And I can't have a one-size-fits-all approach. So I have to have a multifaceted approach. So for some people, it's going to be online education. For some, it's going to be in-person education. So I do lunch and learns. For other people, it's going to be online engagement. So I have a platform for everybody to track their points. For others, it's going to be incentives. So I have this aggressive incentive program where they earn their HSA dollars. For others, it's going to be rewards and recognitions. For others, hey, just leave me the heck alone. I just want to be at peace with myself. Okay. For others, it's going to be uh, uh, intensive counseling. Okay, well, I've got an EAP program, and we expanded that to have a ton of visits. In other cases, it's uh, I want to be financially secure. So we've got financial wellness incentives that are intensive too. Whatever wellness means to you, that's why we call our program Wellness Your Way. So you can design wellness your way. But that's just it, is, is it has to be a multifaceted approach where most companies fail with this wellness endeavor because they try to create a either one 
they try to do a one size fits all approach or two, they try and get away with as cheap of a program or have somebody just offload the program and say, oh, somebody else take care of it for me. And then they step back and they say, well, why didn't it work? Like, mm-hmm. like you said, you got to spend money to make money on this. If you want million dollar results, you got to drop hundreds of thousands of dollars on these incentives. And that's what we do. That sounds awesome. Yeah. I, I always say there's a high cost to a low price. So yep. you know, amen, you, brother. Amen. You got to invest. So what's the biggest challenge in that? Is it the buy-in from the execs? Is it the buy-in from the members? What is the biggest obstacle that you face when trying to roll this out? And how long does it typically take? It sounds like you've had some really good success. You're, you're reaping the benefits within a year. That's a quick turnaround from my perspective. Yeah, well, and the question becomes uh, the stages, right? Because there's rollout and then there's continuation. At the rollout, if you pump this thing out in its entirety at the front, you're going to be met with resistance. But if you roll this thing out in stages and phases, you're going to be able to do this thing right. When I first come up here, hey, I'm the new kid on the block. We don't know you from Adam. All right, that's cool. So what's phase one? Came in, I negotiated a pretty good deal, really good deal. You know, they budgeted for one percentage. I came in at a fraction of that cost for the renewals. And I said, okay, like you budgeted this much. I came in with this. I could have just came in and said, like, I'm the hero. Look at all this money you saved. Yeah, have a great day. Instead, it's like, we saved this much money. I need a little bit of it back. <laughs> and they said, yeah, okay, that sounds fine. Uh, what for? It's like, well, I need 2% to, uh, of, of permanent money, ongoing money, and 2% for one-time money. All right. I need 2% for ongoing money because that's going to be funding our wellness program perpetually. Right? That's going to fund my platform. That's going to fund the trinkets and trash and that kind of stuff perpetually. We said, all right, that's cool. What's the other 2% for? I'm going to build a gym. Okay. We're talking about it anyway. Let's build a gym. Nothing says I'm committed to wellness like a gym. Boom. Here's a statement that says we're all committed to this. Well, here's this gym. It's fancy. We blow this thing out and say, and, and it's a nice gym. We have full professional gym equipment here. And boom, this says we're committed to wellness. Well, everyone gets excited. We run everyone through. We establish a wellness committee. We start to have events. This is all happening before we really tie wellness into any of these incentives. But we get people excited through this first year quietly. And you know, the early adopters come in. That's 25% that are early adopters as we change behavior during this first year, by the time we wrap around the second year, we're saying, you know, this is pretty cool. We did pretty well this year. We're going to roll out this new HSA program and your standard PPO. You can keep your PPO, but we also have this HSA and then boom, we kind of subversively say, and here we are, and we're going to go self-funded. Okay. And we introduce this and look at all the benefits and look at this new program, which I'd done before in a previous life. And so we introduced this. And here it is, it's slipped in, but we've had a year to acclimate without knowing that we're acclimating. So, I, I mean, clearly not your first rodeo. You've done this a couple of times. And then is it, does an organization need to be at a certain size to be able to afford to do this? Do they need to be self-funded? Like, what are some of the things that you need to have lined up in order for this to work out? Actually, the first time that we did this, they were fully funded. The first one was public sector. We set up the similar incentives, but we set it up through uh, HRA instead of an HSA. So the employer could still give the contributions and fund it that way. Uh, so it was a different mechanics. And, and in fact, after 11 years, they finally went self-funded. But you know, the program was still up and running. It's running today, even 12 years. This is their 12th year of that program. Great. And that's yeah. something that you had set up? Yeah, that was our first run at it. 
it's, that's got to be fun to look back and see that that's the, the impact that you've made. Yeah, it's 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 pretty cool. And that because we had done that that first round, then I was able to learn from that and say, let's not make the same mistakes. So we were able to ramp this program up a lot faster. Interesting. So through the course of your year, not your year, through the course of your career, rather, Wade, what has been the biggest skill set that you have acquired that you feel has kind of led to all this success that you had? I'd say there are two things. Number one is uh, there's tenacity. <laughs> there's this unforgiving desire to make things better. And that goes to the second one, which is a dissatisfaction with the status quo. Yeah, we can do so much better. I'm on this personal mission to do better and be better and help other people to get to a better place. And it's that tenacity to say, you know what, it's not right to just sit back and take it because you don't have to. I mean, you don't have to. With a little bit of boldness, you can make such a big difference in this world. And that's all it takes is to be a little bit more outspoken, to be a little bit more brash, to just be a little, have a little bit more energy. You can make such a big difference. And that's really it. So, yeah, you're not afraid to go in and change things where a lot of people are afraid to kind of rock the boat a little bit. Whatever they have, it seems to be working. You're not good with that. <laughs> but, but it's not working. I mean, and that's yeah. just it. As we, we sit back and we're okay with complaining, we're in a world of someonatas, right? Say that word again. I've never heard that. It's a whole room full of someonatas. And we cannot be like that anymore. You, you got to move from the someonatas to I'm gonna's. Oh, and, and there's so few of the I'm gonna, yeah. and, and, and all you got to do is stand up and say, you know what, today in this moment, I'm gonna. And when you shift that mindset from the uh, someone ought to I'm gonna, mm-hmm. it's a, it takes on a different mindset. How do you do that? How do you get somebody to do that? If someone's listening right now and they want to be that guy or that gal, how do you do it? I'm going to quote the uh, great ancient Canadian philosopher, Getty Lee from Rush. Uh, as a child of the 80s from one of their tracks. Yeah. If you choose not to decide, you still have made a choice. That's what it comes down to. Like, you got to make a decision. You got to call the ball. And we have that failure to decide. You got to make a choice. You got to make a choice. And that's what's the first step. You got to choose. And once you make the choice, you made the choice. And you follow through on that choice. That's the first step is to make a choice. Decide what role you're going to play and then live it. Whatever you are, then play the part. Do it. What do you see the future of wellness? Where do you see that evolving, especially nowadays with what's going on with COVID? That's clearly going to be uh, play an important role in this. Oh, my goodness. I mean, that's a game changer. And once you tie that into the world of healthcare, because let's be honest, healthcare is just a mess. And here's my perspective on the employer's role. Like the employer, private employers are the number one non-governmental payer of the healthcare costs in America. I mean, government is paying for Medicare and Medicaid, but aside from that, the employers, we're paying the biggest paycheck or the, the biggest cost for healthcare in America, but we're the most quiet. We're the most silent. We are not expressing, we're complaining about it once a year, and that's at renewals. We are not collectively saying like, this is how we ought to fix this. We're not changing it. And so we've been quiet and on the sidelines the whole time. So we get what we get in terms of the cost where we should have been driving this all along. So when we get to wellness and this whole thing, uh, those companies that have been on top of the wellness factors all along, they're going to have the advantage. So when they come back, they say, hey, we're just going to implement one more thing in terms of personal hygiene, in terms of staying well, promoting exercise, promoting these wellness concepts, it's going to be old hat to those organizations. And it's going to be like nothing else. 
for those who are coming back and they're saying, you know, we got to start with some of these things. It's going to be a painful process of trying to figure this stuff out. So world of wellness, I think we go into a wellness 3.0 in terms of evolution because we've got to take a new stab at it and, and realize that wellness, it has to be the way moving forward to operate as business. Where in the priority list within the world of benefits do you think wellness is going gonna, is gonna to stand? There's where it's going to, and then there's where it should. Okay. Where, <laughs> okay. That's true. Where it should be is at the top, because I'm one to say it's prevent, you know, the number one driver of, of health insurance costs and healthcare costs is claims, period, end of story. And the reason the driver for claims is poor health. That's it. And when you look at most of the claims, I mean, we're talking 70 to 80% of the claims are driven by behavior, not genetics, not accidents, but by behavior. We're talking about the Twinkies, the, you know, the poor diet, the poor exercise. I get that. If we can make shifts in behavior, I'm not saying that we all have to go out running and we all have to go to the gym, but if we can make some basic behavior modifications, we can curb the cost of healthcare and live a much better life. End of story. That's where wellness ought to be, is as a preventative measure. Where is it going to be? We're going to mitigate this thing like anything else. And we're going to say, here's what we have to do to control the costs. And we're going to mitigate it. And we're going to cut costs and do it again. So I'm not sure that wellness is going to actually have a part of the conversation at all because we're going to try and mitigate this. Yeah. Are there any organizations that you feel, or at least that you're familiar with, that really are the bellwether for top wellness programs? I admire Wellcoa. I'm not familiar with them. Who, who are they? Yeah, it's the Wellness Council of America. It's not to say necessarily that they are the, uh, I guess someone would argue with me that there's going to be a different organization out there that does better than Wellcoa, better, or worse, whatever. Here's why I like Wellcoa is because they were one of the first to be out there. They jumped out when wellness wasn't cool and they said, we're going to throw out a model and they've evolved and they said, you know, we're going to be out there. We're going to talk about it. We're going to make wellness at the forefront of this. And they're not afraid to throw a model out and say, here's what we think is right. And they throw the experts out. And they say, here's where we think the future of wellness is. So I've bought into their stuff on an ongoing basis and I like their stuff. It's not to say that I don't like other people's stuff, but they've been at the forefront all, right. all along. Right. What, what is prompted? I mean, you are passionate. What, what has prompted your passion? Uh, I don't know if it's just for business, life, or particular wellness. Where does that come from? Uh, you know what? It's life in general. You know, I grew up recognizing that life is short and things are, are where they are. But I got to tell you, I have a second breath of life from last year. And if we're talking about wellness itself, there's nothing more frustrating than knowing that you should be doing something and knowing having felt it before and not being able to have it. And uh, this comes, you know, from growing up, my genetics are terrible. They're Nordic. I come from, these genes are awful, right? <laughs> Well, why is wrong with Nordic genes? Educate me here. I was built to be 350 pounds. I mean, that's what the genes tell me that I ought to be. That's where my, my size desired to go. So growing up as a kid, right, that's where it's supposed to go. So I had to exercise all the time. And so, you know, I played all the sports and, and was very, very active. So I was, you know, pudgy kid, but then I got into my teens and then, hey, it was pretty cool because as I exercised, I kept it down and, and uh, you know, had some fun with that. But I experienced what health was like as a teenager. Uh, but then you know, I got married, got busy, had school, whatever else. At the same time, the thyroid sh started shutting down. And as the thyroid shut down, the weight came on. I didn't realize what was going on until I packed on 100 pounds. Then you know, I, 
as I have these problems, you know, I finally find this doctor who didn't tell me, hey, you should exercise more and eat less. No kidding, Sherlock. Because <laughs> I was doing that, that kind of stuff, but it was working against me. And this doctor says, how long have you been insulin resistant? I'm like, what's that? And my dad had died from diabetes, right? So I understand what diabetes are. And I'm seeing this. She's like, you're not, you're pre-diabetic. I'm like, oh my gosh. I've been trying not to be for so many years, but by this time, you know, I'm packing 334 pounds and it's like, oh my gosh. And so, you know, we control the diet, we control these things. And it's crazy because I'm preaching wellness, but I'm not looking at, it. I cannot, I'm not playing the part and I understand its role, but I, what's worse is I've known what wellness was from my youth as an athlete, but I can't get there. So again, you know, we adjusted the diet, we adjusted the chemistry, so I stopped gaining. But then finally, uh, about a year and a half ago, I uh, worked with some folks through medical tourism down with the SEMA hospital in Costa Rica, and I had gastric sleeve surgery. And it dropped 140 pounds, and here I am again, back to health. As it turns out, my liver was entering into stage four fatty liver, which is entering into cirrhosis. Almost instantly, the liver healed itself, the body heals itself. I'm back to health again. And yeah, you're, so, you're, you're practicing what you preach. Yeah, it, it has a whole new lease on life. <laughs> so it's great. I, I got one question for you before we go. Yeah, um, do tell. Who's had the biggest impact on your life outside of your family? Well, you know, I can go through the laundry list of the success gurus, right? Tony Robbins, Tom Peters, Stephen Covey, John Maxwell, all of them. Uh, but outside of those guys that who I don't know personally, Kathy Cole is her name. I called her Aunt Kathy. So growing up, we uh, left home for the summertime to go to work in Stanley, Idaho. There's a hotel and restaurant in the middle of the Sawtooth Mountains in central Idaho. So here we are, starting at age 13, we would go up there, right? This was before all the new rules kicked in for youth. So she effectively raised us during the summertime, and we learned a lot of life lessons there. But uh, she would, um, you know, principles like, hey, find something to do or I'll find it for you. <laughs> but she taught us distinctly, don't let anybody tell you that you can't do something. And that alone drives me. Anytime that somebody tells me that I can't do something, that is going to make me be sure that I'm going to go do it. Like Michael Jordan. It's <laughs> the same time <laughs> for him too. <laughs> Oh, man. Well, Wayne, I, I really appreciate the time that you spent, the insights, your passion. And again, I'm going to give another shout out to Lisa Spinelli for making this conversation happen. Thanks for coming on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Are you making a great day? All right. Many thanks for listening to Who's Who in HR. If you're looking to connect with more top-level HR professionals, be sure to log on to NetworkWise.com to find out how you could be part of an HR mastermind group. Also, subscribe to our newsletter to stay up to date on everything happening with NetworkWise. In the interim, make it a great day and remember to always NetworkWise.